Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. More of us are using technology to stay connected during the pandemic. But for some parents in recovery for substance use disorder, it's the only way they can be with their kids. If they're seeing their baby on the phone once a week, that gives them a goal to shoot for. Otherwise, it's easy to slide back into something that's not so conducive to healing. And we dig into the story of a tomato, and not just any tomato. He would not allow any other tomato on the property to grow, to grow because he didn't want to find any cross-pollination of any sort. He wanted the purity of, of his tomato and that strain to remain intact. It was always just mortgage lifters. But there's a mystery behind this tomato. We'll explain later in the show. And I don't know about you, but with all the stress, a chocolate chip cookie sounds just about perfect right now. Today, we'll get some baking tips on a very special kind of cookie made with local buckwheat and stone ground flour. It's not going to be as sweet as like a normal chocolate chip cookie. Think of it as a, like a twist. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're going to listen back to an encore edition of Inside Appalachia. We originally aired this show last November, and it was the first time Mason and I ever hosted together. So we began by asking each other a little bit about our backstories. So, Mason, we originally met through the Folkways program. For the past two years, you've been a part of our network of Folkways reporters, mostly reporting from Virginia. What were a few of the stories that we might have heard that stood out to you? Well, I love the chance to um, do these stories that the Folkways program gave me and work with the producers and editors that I did. Um, the first story I did was about an Afghanistan veteran who uh, came back from the war with, with some issues and has you know, sort of found a new life through tying flies. Um, I did one about a father-son combination in Roanoke who do these um, beautifully restored antique automobiles. And then earlier this year, as the pandemic was, was really starting to set in, I went up to Dinosaur Kingdom 2 in Natural Bridge, which is this um, bizarre roadside attraction um, where Union and Confederate soldiers fight dinosaurs. So you've reported then on Folkways, obviously, but you've also worked as a freelance journalist for a long time and, and for national publications. So you bring a lot to the table here. Um, what are you hoping to see going forward as a host with Inside Appalachia? Uh, well, ever since I started listening to Inside Appalachia, what I've loved about the show is how it can find and collect these stories from all over the region, all different kinds of stories, and it puts them in this regional frame that really brings them into context and um, it brings out the meaning and the connections. Um, so like, I may not necessarily um, think too much about a story from Ohio, but when it's done then inside Appalachia, like I immediately make these connections as to how it affects my own life or how it fits with things I see. And it tells these kinds of stories, like that's the reason I got into journalism from wildlife biology a couple years out of college is, is I wanted to, I'd moved away from Appalachia and I, I saw journalism as a way to come back and tell these regional scope stories. And that's what I've tried to do, you know, in newspapers and, and on a freelance basis. And Inside Appalachia really hits that type of story that I like. And what I really love about it is that there's so many ways people draw divisions, whether it's political or denominational 
or even in what like neighborhood you live in. And I love how Inside Appalachia is just welcoming and wraps everybody in and brings us all together um, for these stories that help us understand our region and the world. You know, Mason, I completely agree. And in the past couple years reporting for Inside Appalachia, I've had the opportunity to see that and learn about the region. And to be honest, it had never crossed my mind to host the show. I'm a newcomer to the region, and I really tried to take a back seat and let you all tell me about your culture and home. You know, I originally started reporting professionally in Alaska as a fisheries reporter, and then I spent some time in D.C. doing national reporting, and then I eventually made my way to West Virginia. And to be honest, I'm a newcomer to this region. But I've Gotta say, I feel a real connection to West Virginia. And I'm originally from Wyoming, and I grew up in a small town uh, surrounded by the mountains. And so I think that has helped me feel connected to this place. And I not only love the landscape and the Appalachian Mountains, but I really have loved getting to know the people. You all have some incredible stories to share, and there's so much to be proud of and be excited about. So I guess that's what I'm hoping to see going forward is I really want Inside Appalachia to be a show about you, the listeners. And I'm excited to continue learning and discovering new things about the region and highlighting you all. And I'm really looking forward to connecting with Inside Appalachia's audience as well. Um, One of my favorite parts of reporting, but kind of what drew me into the whole profession was just the chance to go talk to people and learn something new about the world. You know, as as I've expanded my journalism from covering communities to covering a broader region, like I I love how every part of the region is different. And even city to city, holler to holler, back road to back road, they're all different. And everybody you meet, um, even the folks who say, oh, there's nothing interesting about me, you start talking to them and these stories just start spilling out. And that's my favorite part of journalism. And, and I think I'm, that's the part I'm looking forward to with the show and especially with this particular audience and, and this region. Can't wait to get into it. And I think, Mason, you and I both agree that we do have big shoes to fill. Our former host, Jessica Lilly, she really helped make the show what it is today. When I first started listening to Inside Appalachia several years ago, it was through the podcast. And I'd put it on. And do farm chores, often milking goats, especially it takes a long time in the spring. And Jessica's voice just made me feel really welcome. She reminded me of one of my cousins or the folks I went to high school with. And I just, you know, she immediately makes you feel like you're part of the community. You're sitting down at the family table talking across to her um, over a meal. And I love that sense of warmth. Her strength as a host and also her approach to storytelling will definitely inform my approach to Inside Appalachia going forward. Caitlin and I are still learning, so please be patient and bear with us as we work through these next several months. We also really want to hear your ideas and feedback, so send it to us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. We're both really excited for the chance to be with all y'all each week. Well, Mason, are you ready? Should we get the show started? Yeah, let's do it. You're Inside Appalachia, and I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. On today's show, we're talking about renewal and regrowth. It's been a pretty stressful time for almost every human being on this planet. So we wanted to slow down, take a breath, and start off today's show talking about food. And in particular, cookies. 
One of our Folkways reporters, Rachel Green, has been talking with home bakers who bake pies and cookies with flour that's ground the old-fashioned way at a stone-ground mill. One of the bakers shared a recipe with Rachel for buckwheat chocolate chip cookies. So, Rachel, tell me about these cookies. I think we all could use one right about now. Yeah, of course. This recipe actually comes from Jennifer Lapidus, who runs Carolina Ground, which is a flour mill in Asheville, North Carolina. And it appealed to me because it's this twist on on a classic that we all know and love. You know, you can use this recipe to really highlight a unique ingredient, which in this case is buckwheat flour. Like at first glance, the recipe kind of looks intimidating. You know, there's two different types of flour. And then there's also sourdough discard. So walk us through those two things. So the sour discard is an interesting part of the recipe. And if you have worked with sourdough before, you know that you have to feed it every so often. And in some cases, you end up throwing a lot away. And this is a really unique way to be able to use that product that would otherwise go to waste. And it it's not super prominent in the recipe, but it does give a little tangy edge to the cookies. And then with the buckwheat, on its own, it doesn't have a super strong flavor. It is like a little bitter, which I think in this case plays really well with like the chocolate and the sweetness of the cookies. So it just kind of adds another dimension to the recipe. So there's two different types of flour. There's the the buckwheat flour and then the bread flour. Why why both flours? In a lot of cases, using and like if you want to call it an alternative flour like buckwheat flour or some of these other stone ground flours, they can be a little tricky to work with if you just use it for all of the flour in a recipe. It can maybe lead to something that's a little tougher or a little more dry or crumbly. So being able to use a bread flour in this case or in other cases an all-purpose flour allows someone who doesn't want to deal with all of those tricky things about using a completely new flour to kind of ease into it. Gotcha. And so, Rachel, would you consider yourself a baker? And had you had much experience with buckwheat flour before? I'm a novice baker for sure. I I definitely (laughs) like baking at home. So it's been really fun to explore new flavors and new flowers. And this was the first time that I had worked with buckwheat. And I was really pleasantly surprised that it wasn't difficult to use. And it, I feel like if I can do it, then, then hopefully other people can too. So Rachel, you actually recorded yourself making these cookies. And walk us through the steps of, of how you made these buckwheat cookies. It's a pretty straightforward recipe. Um, you mix the butter together with the sugar and the eggs. And then uh, the sourdough starter goes into that as well. In a separate bowl, you can mix all of the dry ingredients together, both of the flours and, you know, any salt as well as baking powder. I found the dough, again, to be a little more on the cakey side. So it wasn't something that I could roll into a ball necessarily and place on a cookie sheet. It was more of a you kind of had to portion them out with like a spoon. And what was your consensus? I ended up really liking them. I thought it was really well balanced in the end because you have the rich chocolate chip cookies and then the kind of slightly bitter buckwheat. And I think overall that worked really well for me personally. It's not going to be as sweet as like a normal 
chocolate chip cookie. So I think if you think of it as a like a twist, I think that helps. Okay. Kind of like an adult chocolate chip cookie. Um, what about any tips for finding uh, like buckwheat flour? I mean, it doesn't seem like something you would just go to Walmart to find, obviously. Yeah, for sure. That's somewhat of a tricky thing about it. Um, I had to go to a local food cooperative here in Asheville. If you can find a store that has a bulk bin where you can get just the amount you need, you can come out a little cheaper. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to definitely have to give it a try. I'm, (laughs) you know, like us all, I've been trying to try new recipes during the pandemic. I mean, if there's any time to do it, I think now is the time. (laughs) If you want that recipe for buckwheat chocolate chip cookies, it's on our website, wvpublic.org. Caitlin, I've noticed during the pandemic, people seem to be thinking more about local foods, probably because they're worried about supply chains and food shortages. Yeah, actually, according to Nielsen data, flour sales nearly doubled in 2020 compared with 2019. You know, sometimes we take flour for granted. It's the base for our baked goods, and that's about as far as most of us think about it. But as Rachel Green discovered, along with that cookie recipe, bakers in western North Carolina are making all kinds of baked goods with stone-milled flour. Let's just pour the blueberries in the pot. So um, I've just got one lemon, and I'm just going to zest it into the blueberries. This is baker Kia Mastriani rolling out dough for blueberry hand pies. I've never been able to roll a perfect dough circle. There's people who can and I don't, (laughs) ever. Mastriani is the baker behind Milk Glass Pie, a small batch pie bakery. She runs Milk Glass Pie out of her home in Shelby, North Carolina. My thing that I always say is love is pie. I just want to support local products. I want to bake by the seasons and I just want people to taste the love in each pie. Mastriani calls her pies old-fashioned. She's inspired by southern cuisine. You can find her whipping up everything from corn custard pies to tomato pies to lemon berry pies. She even started what she calls front porch pie at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic to deliver freshly baked pies right to people's doorsteps. But no matter the filling, one thing that ties all of Mastriani's pies together is the flour she uses. Flour that's stone-milled right here in western North Carolina. It's been, it's been really special for me to use it. A big reason Mastriani uses locally stone-milled flour is that it has a rich, distinct flavor that makes her pies stand out. Flour is more complex than it seems. Each variety of wheat is different and has a specific taste and texture that can be drawn out in the milling process. It can have a whole range of flavors, from bitter and tannic to nutty and rich to smooth and buttery. You know, whole grain flours just have flavor. They taste like something. Wheat doesn't grow much in Appalachia or in the southeast. The climate just isn't right. It's too humid. It has been possible to use local produce like heirloom apples or tomatoes, but flour is a different story. So local stone millers have stepped in to bridge the gap between bakers and grain farmers. We have been a baker-driven mill from the very beginning. That's Jennifer Lapidus. She's the founder of Carolina Ground, a flour mill based in Asheville, North Carolina, that specializes in stone ground flour. Then we started milling in the spring of 2012. 
Lapida says Carolina Ground is part of a local grains movement. Lapida sees the area surrounding Asheville, North Carolina, as a great place for bakers like herself to be. The community is tight-knit. Many bakers, professional and amateur, see the value in locally milled flour. What's even more unique is that while Carolina Ground is used by bakers all over the South, including Mastriani, most of the wheat is actually grown in North Carolina. The main benefit of using locally ground flour, though, is that small-scale millers like Lapidus can focus on the milling process as well as the grain itself. You know, we're milling, going back to a way of milling that actually really underscores the value of this grain. Each type of grain has a distinct look and taste, so Lapidus wants to make sure her flour reflects that. She says stone milling is the process that produces the features they're looking for. It's an ancient method of milling, likely the first according to scholars. With stone milling, the grains are slowly crushed between two huge 48-inch circular stones that are kept below 100 degrees. We're not going to just sort of process it for its pure functionality and efficiency, but stone grind and, and retain some of what is rightfully there in terms of nutrients and flavor and character of the grain. Stone milling has almost nothing in common with roller milling, which is how most flour you see on grocery store shelves is produced. Roller mills are super efficient, but Lapidus says the process takes much of the flavor out of the flour. In contrast, she says stone grinding results in a rich, nutrient-dense flour. If you feel our flour, it just has kind of an oiliness that if you feel like grocery store flour, it just doesn't really have that same feel. Lapidus says the flour has a silky, smooth texture. Really super sexy. <laughs> this flour is just really beautiful. And some bakers swear by it. You know, I can see the, the, the whole grain in the dough. I mean, it's a different looking dough. Kia Mastriani says small flecks of whole wheat are speckled throughout the dough. It's, it's very pleasant to look at, but it's also full of flavor. Whereas commodity AP flour or bread flour is almost designed to taste like nothing. This is Brennan Johnson. He runs the Walnut Schoolhouse, a one-room baking school in the small town of Marshall, North Carolina, 30 minutes from Asheville. Johnson grew up watching his father bake in the brick oven in his parents' backyard in Minnesota. Johnson fell in love with baking, too. When he graduated college in 2016, baking was an easy career choice. So he moved to Asheville, where the baking community thrives. And he says he... Just quickly became enamored with everything that was going on in that, in that region. Johnson was inspired by bakers and millers, like Lapidus, who use uncommon grains and baking techniques. Now he runs the Walnut Schoolhouse, where he's introducing home bakers to the value of locally stone milled flour. Flour is the base or the medium for making something, but it's not regarded as a flavor in and of itself. Johnson teaches and hosts classes for bakers of all skill levels, from an introduction to sourdough to a historical pie class hosted by Mastriani. He says there's a lot of interest from bakers of all skill levels here in Western North Carolina to learn new techniques and traditions. And stone-milled flour can be the entryway for bakers to explore new flavors. One approach that I often take is trying to pair 
the actual flavor of the grain I'm using. Each type of wheat has its own different flavor. So an Appalachian white wheat will be very creamy and mild, whereas turkey red can be very nutty and earthy. These characteristics can come out in all sorts of recipes. Johnson uses Appalachian white wheat flour like an all-purpose flour. It's great for pastries and pie crusts, as well as bread. There are several challenges to using freshly milled flour. The oils that provide its flavor also mean it can spoil quickly, so many hobby bakers store it in the freezer to extend the shelf life and avoid fridge odors. And it can be harder to work with because whole grains soak up more liquid, so you'll have to add a little extra if you're substituting whole grain flour for all-purpose flour in a recipe. Cost is also an issue. Producing flour on a small scale means costs can be pretty high, multiple times higher than commodity flour even. This is something baker Kia Mastriani thinks about. I don't want it to become a luxury product where it's only for elite folks. So Mastriani and Johnson recommend combining more expensive flours with the all-purpose flour you can buy in the grocery store. This saves money and it still gives you a boost in flavor. This is important because more people are catching on to these unique flowers, and not just because of the pandemic. They're becoming easier to buy, and bakeries across the United States are working hard to support these local grain economies. There may be drawbacks to using fresh stone-milled flour, but it has a dedicated following, and Mastriani, Lapidus, and Johnson are all confident that it's here to stay. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rachel Green in Asheville, North Carolina. Rachel is a member of our Inside Appalachia Folkways Reporting Corps. Hey, and thanks to Jen Nathan Orris of Skillet Podcast for letting us use sound from her episode on blueberry hand pies. We're going to keep talking about food for our next story. Have you ever heard of Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter Tomato? Maybe you saw them at the farmer's market this summer. They're big, kind of pink and sweet. This heirloom breed got its start in Logan County, West Virginia. A guy named Radiator Charlie bred two varieties of tomato together to get a giant, juicy fruit. Word spread, and eventually, so many people bought his $1 tomato plants that he was able to pay off his house. That's how the mortgage lifter got its name. It's a well-known story among tomato lovers, but it turns out there's a twist. There's a lesser-known West Virginia tomato, also called the mortgage lifter, that's older than Radiator Charlie's. Same name, different plants. What's going on here? Zach Harold decided to look into it and ended up getting a taste of the forgotten mortgage lifter. I'm sitting in Mary Lou Essler's dining room. Does this have salt on it already? Or? I just brought it, did not bring it. Before me on a blue china plate are four slices of tomato and a big dollop of Mary Lou's homemade mayonnaise. Oh, wow. I didn't come here to eat tomatoes. Mary Lou just happens to be one of those Appalachian grandmothers who won't take no for an answer when it comes to food. I'd really come here to talk about her in-laws. When she married her late husband Bob in 1960, it wasn't long before she was introduced to a priceless family heirloom, an heirloom tomato. Uh, They had beautiful dinners. There was a back porch over there and big family. And Mrs. Essler owned a Blinko... um, piece of glass all the way around would be these gorgeous slices of mortgage lifter tomatoes. So that was always a favorite. 
Now, these weren't the so-called Radiator Charlie mortgage lifters you find in lots of seed catalogs nowadays. No, this was a breed of tomato developed by Mary Lou's father-in-law, William Essler. It first showed up back in the mid-1920s, several years before Radiator Charlie brought his tomato to market. Mr. Essler had two tomatoes that he was raising, the Pritchard and the Ponderosa. People were not able to get uh, tomatoes that were not acidic. And Mr. Essler was interested in seeing if he could develop a tomato that was low acid. Evidently put those two tomatoes together and came up with this one very special tomato. Special indeed. Some reports say the plants could grow up to 12 feet tall. The tomatoes themselves were round, red on the outside, pink on the inside, and could weigh up to two and a half pounds apiece. But most important of all, they were delicious. Pleasantly sweet, not acidic and sour. Mrs. Essler had them for breakfast with a little sugar on them. The tomatoes were a hit with family and friends alike, so William Essler built a greenhouse and started raising seedlings. He sold them on to uh, local uh, vendors, um, and to local nurseries, and provided seed to some of these, also these local nurseries. He did not sell them on a retail basis. He strictly sold on a wholesale basis to some of these nurseries. Dean Williams is Mary Lou's son-in-law and the family's unofficial tomato historian. Their, their goal was never on a national basis. It always looked like they kept things on a local, local basis. I never saw anything that gave an indication that they were trying to, to make this on a, you know, a national type of uh, tomato. It was actually an offhand remark by an employee of one of those nurseries who gave the tomato its name, Mortgage Lifter. William Essler liked the name so much, he had it copyrighted in 1932. By the time Mary Lou joined the family, though, her father-in-law was getting up in years. He had turned over the farm to his son. That's Bob, Mary Lou's husband. And Bob converted much of the property to a nine-hole golf course to keep from having to sell it. Bob kept on raising his father's tomatoes, though, and his passion only increased after his father passed away in 1968 in a house fire. Bob would put out about 75 tomato plants and... uh, then he would, you know, make a point to save the choice tomatoes to save the seed from. He uh, was kept busy all summer. You have to continually spray the tomatoes. They have to be tied. And I have pictures of Bob standing on a stepladder in the garden where he's still tying the tomatoes. He made the mistake of bringing a cherry tomato plant to, a, to a Mary Lou once, and that was, that was a no-no, a definite, <laughs> definite no-no. He would not allow any other tomato on the property to grow, to grow because he didn't want to find any cross-pollination of any sort. He wanted the purity of, of his tomato and that strain to remain intact. It was always just mortgage lifters. If Bob was so protective of his father's tomato that he wouldn't even allow other breeds on his property, well, you can imagine how he felt when he found out there was another tomato making the rounds, also called the mortgage lifter. In 1987, Bob received a letter from a guy in Texas who got mortgage lifter seeds from his sister. She lived in Huntington and got mortgage lifter seeds from Bob. 
The Texan was leafing through a Southern Exposure seed exchange catalog one day when he came across a mortgage lifter tomato, attributed not to William Essler of Barbersville, West Virginia, but to Radiator Charlie from Logan, West Virginia. Confused, he wrote Bob a letter to see if he could clear things up. And we were like, what? <laughs> we were, you know, it was really rather shocking to find out that someone else was getting the credit for all of Mr. Essler's hard work. Bob didn't have much recourse. William Essler's copyright lapsed in the 1970s after the family attorney failed to file a renewal. So Bob did the only thing he could. He fired off a letter to Southern Exposure demanding the listing be removed. Now let's be clear. Bob did not believe that Radiator Charlie was claiming William Essler's tomato as his own. They're different plants bred from different parent tomatoes. Bob just felt that with Radiator Charlie using the mortgage lifter name, his father's tomato, the original mortgage lifter in his mind, was being overshadowed. The letter didn't work. Southern Exposure and a lot of other seed catalogs still sell Radiator Charlie's tomato, and it's still called the mortgage lifter. But for the rest of his life, Bob did what he could to set the record straight. He gave lots of interviews to newspapers, magazines, and TV stations, and he also gave away a lot of tomatoes. That generosity is part of the reason the Essler mortgage lifter is still around today. Mary Lou tried to keep the strain going after Bob died in 2012, but she couldn't contend with the deer that liked to stop by. Her son-in-law, Dean Williams, grows tomatoes that he's pretty sure are Essler mortgage lifters. That's what they served me when I stopped by for the interview. They came from the Hatcher, Hatcher uh, Nursery in, in South Point. We, we grew three plants this year. So they, were, they, they came in fairly well. We still have quite a few, few uh, tomatoes, but they were fairly on the smaller side than, than what they're used to. But Bob sent seeds to lots of people through the years. The family has heard that relatives in Virginia are growing Essler mortgage lifters. There's tales that the seeds have even made it to Australia and Panama and Africa. But the family knows for sure that a niece in Alabama is growing the genuine article. She's going to send seeds back to West Virginia so Dean can get them going here again. That's what's special about heirloom seed varieties. Their stories are never over so long as people keep growing them. And knowing the story only makes the food taste better. I can testify to that. I'm not just saying this because the tape is rolling. I'm not just saying this because the tape is rolling. This is seriously one of the best tomatoes I've ever had. Oh, I'm so glad you hear you say that. That's what everybody thinks. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Barbersville, West Virginia. Lettuce and homegrown tomatoes up in the morning, out in the garden. Get you ripe when you don't get a heart. Zach's story is also from our Folkways project. You can hear more of our Folkways stories at wvpublic.org. Does your family have an heirloom seed you've been passing on? Have you been able to keep it going? Tell us about it. We are at 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. Or send an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Up next, the sound of cicadas may not be your favorite sound, but we'll meet a woman who creates art that's inspired by and made out of cicadas.
I want people to love them as much as I love them. Like they're unabashedly themselves, you know, and they're these little creatures that spend all this time underground and then they finally come out of the ground and they're like, hey, I'm here. That's up after a quick break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Keatlin Tan. We'll be right back. Days up and down they come Like rain on a conga drum Forget most, remember some Don't turn none away Everything is not enough Nothing is too much Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Today, we've heard stories about people planting seeds of change. Literal seeds, like heirloom tomatoes and wheat that's uniquely suited for our climate. These are both fun stories with a serious side to them. We've seen how people are finding joy through their gardens and food work, even through the pandemic and with winter on its way. But there are also people here in Appalachia who are going through some of the darkest, most challenging times of their lives. Next, we'll hear about how some families who were broken apart by addiction have managed to find healing and reunite. Within the past decade, the number of children in West Virginia's foster care system has increased by more than 65 percent. Today, roughly 7,000 children are in state custody. The opioid epidemic hit families hard, and now the pandemic is making things even harder. Despite this, people are finding ways to move forward. Last November, when we originally aired this episode, Emily Corio reported on some of the ways the pandemic has affected foster families. On a recent fall morning, Dr. Joshua Carter spins a metal bingo drum at his office at Cabin Creek Health Systems near Charleston. For his patients, it's the sound of progress. Every time they pass a drug test, they can spin the drum to earn prizes, like gas carts, track phones, or toys for their children. It's part of a program to treat methamphetamine addiction, but it requires in-person visits, and that hasn't always been possible this year. The big thing we've had to do is figure out how to keep everybody connected. Earlier in the pandemic, Dr. Carter saw increased dropout rates in his treatment programs as patients struggled to get to the three-month sober mark. Since we went back to in-person for the last about month and a half, uh, we finally had five people this week hit 90 days and get to graduate to the next phase of treatment. Dr. Carter says Zoom meetings weren't as effective as in-person, and normal program requirements like volunteer work had to be scrapped. The pandemic has also created situations that challenge those in recovery. We always talk about in group the three big triggers as time, money, and boredom. A national survey conducted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in June showed that 13 percent of respondents had started or increased substance use during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the number of emergency room visits in the state related to drug overdoses increased this summer when compared to the same time last year. 
Some of those struggling with addiction are parents whose children may end up in state custody. Delvin Johnson is the site manager of the Davis Child Emergency Shelter in Charleston, where kids ages 12 to 18 can go until they have a more permanent place in foster care. We are resuming like a sense of normalcy, kind of. Back in the spring, the shelter was full and children were staying longer. Since then, children have come and gone, and now a new school year is well underway. You know, youth care workers, you know, myself, the new shelter supervisor, you know, everybody's basically become teachers. Johnson says the staff and the kids have adjusted well, but some other aspects of daily life are more challenging, like getting kids to wear masks all the time. There was a scare at the shelter this summer when a staff member tested positive for coronavirus. Kids were quarantined for about a month. Staff could only go between the shelter and their homes, but no one else contracted the virus. We were cleaning a lot during that time, even still do, you know, sanitizing the services, wiping off doorknobs, um, you know, wearing PPE, the face mask and everything like that. But there have been around 100 cases of COVID-19 among children in state custody since the pandemic began. Back in March, foster parent Amber Gall was caring for her three children and fostering two others, one of whom was close to being reunified with her parents. Then overnight trips to their house stopped and calls took their place. Gall says it wasn't easy to keep a toddler interested in a video call for an hour, but she says it was worth it. If they're seeing their baby on the phone once a week, twice a week, that gives them a goal to shoot for. Otherwise, especially with like the drugs, it's easy to slide back into something that's not so conducive to healing. Then about two months into the pandemic, the little girl was reunified with her parents. In September, Gall and her husband adopted a four-year-old boy they had been fostering for a year. This was their second adoption, but this one happened over Zoom due to the pandemic. It was quite a different experience, um, but it was equally as special. And then later that day, we had a drive-by congratulations party for him. And so even in the middle of this pandemic, there is some healing and hope. Brittany Adkins' story is also evidence of that. About this time last year, she was addicted to heroin and ended up in jail for 30 days. That's where she was when she learned that her four daughters were taken into state custody. What my rock bottom, I think, was when my kids got taken. Soon after, she also learned about family treatment court. The court program started in Boone County last year to address the drug epidemic's effect on families. Parents involved in child abuse and neglect cases are connected to addiction treatment and parenting classes, among other things. Atkins was interested, especially since she could see her children throughout the process. When they said those words, you get to see your children automatically as soon as the day is set up, I said yes. That was it. That's all it took for me to say yes, I will. I want to be in family treatment for it. Adkins regained custody of her four daughters, ages 2 to 10, in August. I'm going to start out with Brittany Adkins. Along with seven others, Adkins graduated from family treatment court last month. Circuit Judge Will Thompson spoke about her success. Uh, Brittany encountered some hiccups uh, when she first came into the program. However, with increased treatment and support, uh, you now have 232 clean days. That's incredible, guys. And that, too, is the sound of progress. 
For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Corio in Morgantown, West Virginia. If you or someone in your life is struggling with substance use disorder and you want to find treatment, here's a number to call. 1-800-662-4357. For our final story, we'll meet a woman who found a unique symbol of renewal and change. Cicadas. You know, those noisy bugs that emerge every few years in the summertime. Well, it turns out cicada shells can be turned into art. Yeah, up on the Blue Ridge Plateau where I live, for weeks this summer we could hear the cicadas getting closer and closer until they finally engulfed our holler. They filled the air with that eerie drone and left shells scattered all over the place. Turns out those shells can be turned into art. Cicadas are oval-shaped winged insects that can be as long as three inches. They can be black, brown, or green, often with red or white eyes. Their mating calls are thought to sound like a hissing jet. There's like a lot of times that I hear people say, oh my god, these things are so annoying. Uh, They just scream all the time or people are scared of them. That's Jessie McClanahan. She's a 26-year-old ceramic artist based in Charleston, West Virginia. Her work has a natural, organic look, often including plants or insects, specifically cicadas. I really love insects. When I was a kid, I was convinced that they were my best friends. Jessie wears her hair in two braids with thick bangs across her forehead. She has detailed insect tattoos one of which is a cicada, covering her right shoulder. I need their screams to go to sleep sometimes. When I leave the South and I can't sleep, I have this YouTube video saved on my phone, and it's uh, Appalachian Summer Nights or something like that, and it just has a bunch of cicadas screaming in the background. And in the last few years, Jessie's found a way to incorporate cicadas in her ceramics. I take cicada shells and I cast them in clay slip and then I paint them. The cicada shells are actually the skin or exoskeleton the insect sheds when it emerges from underground. Jessie has gathered shells over the years just from living in the mountain state and her friends also find shells for her too. In her studio, which is beneath Taylor Books in Charleston, Jessie dips her cicada shells in the clay slip, which is the consistency of a mud puddle. She fires the shells twice in a kiln. In between each fire is when she adds detail to the little guys. She starts by sanding down any fingerprints or rough edges. These things are really delicate. So I have to use a fine touch. This one's actually a really nice one. He has all his legs. Uh, Some of them are missing legs or like their heads are a little wonky. Jessie jokes that she spends so much time with the cicadas that they take on their own personalities. Just like the way that they're sitting, like some of them, their heads are kind of like obscured by their little claws a little bit more or some of them like have their claws spread out more and they look sassy or shy. 
She also paints the shells several times with clay and then paint to prepare them for the kiln again and to also add detail. So I start off with the eyes and I feel like that determines your personality a lot too. Cicadas have five eyes, two main eyes and three on top of their heads, which actually help them see the light through the soil so they know when to emerge. Jessie says her cicadas aren't hyper-realistic, but a loose interpretation. They're still pieces of art. She uses several different paintbrushes to create texture and depth. So right now I'm painting on their little underbellies. Jessie first started using cicadas in her artwork in a college class, mostly out of curiosity. But now she's on a mission to rebrand the insects through her work. I want people to love them as much as I love them. Like they're unabashedly themselves, you know, and they're these little creatures that spend all this time underground and then they finally come out of the ground and they're like, hey, I'm here. Jesse's ceramic professor at West Virginia State University, Molly Erlinson, was actually there when Jesse thought to cover cicadas in clay. I'm looking at one right now. Um, I mean, they're amazing, unique. Molly says she's never seen it done before and that the natural world plays a big part in all of Jesse's other ceramic work. All of Jessie's ceramics are earth tone colors, ranging from everyday items like mugs and bowls to abstract sculptures. And rather than using a potter's wheel, all of her pieces are hand-shaped. Jessie says it's more time-intensive, but it allows for more of a one-of-a-kind process. Her signature sculptures look like a clay web in a rounded shape or vessel, sometimes containing plants or flowers, or even with cicadas attached to the webbing. Molly says she interprets the webs as Jessie's reaction to her environment. She talks a lot about the terrain of West Virginia, how she grew up here, how she is sort of in love with the look of the land. And I see her work as, as greatly reflecting that. And Jessie agrees. In fact, she says the life cycle of the cicada is representative to her of what is happening in Appalachia right now. When the cicada emerges from the ground, it sheds its shell and goes through what Jessie calls a rebirth and growth. And that process of change is what she sees in Appalachia. We have traditionally made all of our money off of coal mines. And that's not as feasible right now. So we see all this change happening within our communities. And like, man, some of it's not for good, but I see some good happening as well. We're going through change. We're going through a rebirth in some areas. This year, Jesse was selected for the Emerging Artist Fellowship for the Tamarack Foundation of the Arts. She's one of five artists chosen in the state. Her cicadas are featured in her work through the fellowship. If you want to see Jesse's work, go to our website, wvpublic.org. <laughs> Today, we've heard how an artist pays homage to the cicada, which spends most of its life underground, but every 17 years bursts forth in a droning insectoid tidal wave. We also learned how people are using their talents to produce artisanal flour and heirloom tomatoes. And we heard from folks who were rebuilding their lives and families after struggling with substance use disorder. Mason, 
you know, I listen to these stories and I'm struck by how the world can be a dark and challenging place sometimes. But through all that, it's also filled with wonder and joy. And I think it's important to remember all of that. Yeah, we talked earlier about what we were looking forward to. And I think that's a big part of it, too, for me, is just getting to cover this region and tell its stories and all their richness and complexity. You know, I totally agree. There's so many more stories that I'm excited to bring to the show that will help share the complexities of our region. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Producing Inside Appalachia this week from the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme music is by Mac Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Guy Clark, and Anna and Elizabeth. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. And our editor is Kelly Libby. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Sandra Alloy also helped produce this episode. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. My Twitter handle is at Miss underscore C-Tan. That's M-I-S-S underscore C-T-A-N, like the color. Mason is at Mason Atoms. That's A-T-O-M-S, like the atomic particle. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.